if you are still using paper-based means of accessing information, uh, please turn with me to our passage this morning, which is 1 Peter chapter 5, and beginning from verse 5. In the same way, you who are younger, submit yourselves to your elders. All of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another because God opposes the proud but shows favour to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand that he may lift you up in due time. Cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. Be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Resist him, standing firm in the faith, because you know that the family of believers throughout the world is undergoing the same kind of sufferings. And the God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, after you have suffered a little while, will himself restore you and make you strong, firm and steadfast. To him be the power forever and ever. Amen. With the help of Silas, whom I regard as a faithful brother, I've written to you briefly, encouraging you and testifying that this is the true grace of God. Stand fast in it. She who is in Babylon, chosen together with you, sends you her greetings, and so does my son Mark. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Peace to all of you, who are in Christ. <clears throat> we heard uh, last week, some of us, uh, up close and personal, that verses 1 to 4 in this chapter have a great deal to say to elders. Uh, in verse 5, however, Peter widens his address first to you who are younger, He does not define who you who are younger are. But then he just opens it straight to all of you. Okay, so this is a net with a fine mesh and it has caught us all. So when we pick up the passage in verse 6, it is now addressed to all those who originally heard the letter. In Pontius, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia and Bithynia and consequently to all of us this morning. Now remember the context of the letter is one of oppression, persecution and violence meted out to those who loved Jesus and walked in his ways through the hands of those who hated Jesus and despised his ways. Now for us this morning, obviously our background is not one of persecution that the content, it has to be said, remains deeply relevant to us because all scripture is inspired by God 
and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting and training in righteousness. And we shouldn't forget that uh, right now, this morning, there are brothers and sisters in Christ elsewhere in the world who are suffering persecution. So to our passage, uh, reading in verses 6 and 7. Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up in due time. Cast all your anxiety on him, because he cares for you. Now verse 6 is not talking about the necessary and godly humility that we should extend to one another. For that was dealt with, if you remember, in verse 5. It's instead speaking of the humility a people, under the grace of God, should extend towards the Lord their God. When you think about it, what can the appropriate reaction be of a people with no contribution to make towards their own salvation, yet whom were saved? What can the appropriate reaction be of a people who were redeemed from their sin through an eternal act of forgiveness that they did not deserve? What can the appropriate reaction be of a people to whom such grace has been extended to the Lord God who extended it to them? It must be to respond with a humble heart. Now just to clear this up, humble means not to be proud. It means not believing that you are important. It means not claiming to be special. This is no more than a recognition of the grace on which our relationship with God is founded. We brought nothing to it. We have no rights. We can make no demands. And proper response can only be our humble adoration. Now we read that we should humble ourselves under God's mighty hand. Now, I'm, I'm fairly sure there's no one in the room has difficulties accepting that God's hand is mighty. Uh, but why did Peter write that we are under it? Uh, imagine, if you will, that you've picked up uh, a sparrow, uh, a fledgling perhaps that's failed to fly, or, or a, an injured bird, or, or in my case, a bird which flew full chat into the French windows. Unless you're frightened of birds, and I know some people find them all fluttery and horrible, uh, I, I'm not one of them, then you, your instinct is to tend to it. And you will pick it up like this, and you will hold it under your hand. You see, it reassures it. It's now in a, a, a quiet and dark place. It, it feels much more secure than it did when it was fluttering about, or in, in my case, when it wasn't moving at all. Okay. And God's intent for those under his hand is stated clearly, that he may lift you up in due time. 
We've got to rely completely, completely upon the power of God. And trust him in times of trouble and when things are going well for our lifting up. It is not up to us. We must humble ourselves in that regard. That is humility. The reverse is arrogance. The reverse is to say to God, I know better. You're doing this because you don't love me. Your timing's off. That's arrogance, isn't it? And we've already read that the correct response is humility. Now next we read in verse 7, Cast all your anxiety or care or burdens on him because he cares for you. Uh, I'm going to use anxiety, care and burdens interchangeably moving forward. I hope that's okay. Uh, It's a verse many are familiar with uh, and can probably quote word perfectly. But outside of the fishing fraternity, we don't use the verse very often. Cast means to throw something forcefully in a specified... To throw something forcefully in a specified direction. The meaning is, throw all your anxiety on him as hard as you can. Okay? I'm just going to break there and say, when I passed these out earlier to some of my brothers and sisters in Christ, inquiries I received were, one, is there time to wrap it in a brick? Uh, Two, can I find something sharp to go with it? And three, can I run at you to make sure I hit you? (laughs) The meaning is very much throw your anxiety as hard as you can on him. And why would God want you to chuck all this stuff at him? Because he cares for you. And why doesn't God want you to labor under all of your anxieties? Because he cares for you who are under his hand. Are their anxieties too large or too small to cast upon him? No. Just think about that. No. Okay. Are their anxieties too large or too small to cast upon him? The deep theological, going to the Greek and the Hebrew answer is no. Spurgeon poses the next question clearly when he asks this. How then are we to cast all our care upon God? Here's what he said. Two things need to be done. It is a heavy load that is to be cast upon God and it requires the hand of prayer and the hand of faith to make the transfer. Prayer tells God what the care is and asks God to help, whilst faith believes that God can and will do it. Prayer spreads the letter of trouble and grief before the Lord and opens all its budget. And then faith cries, I believe that God cares and cares for me. I believe that he will bring me out of my distress 
and make it promote his own glory. Casting anxiety requires humility. From one side of the coin, we can't say to God, it's all right, God, I can handle it. Okay? And on the other side, we can't say, oh, no, Lord, this is too big for you. Okay? It needs humility to understand that it isn't too big for him. It needs humility to follow the clear instruction that we should cast our anxiety or our cares or our burdens upon him. We need the humility to understand we can't handle it from our own resource, but that we worship a God whose resources are without limit. Now, casting anxiety or casting burdens, it often requires us to put our feelings behind. Uh, I apologise if I've used this um, uh, illustration before. As I was writing the sermon, I just got this feeling that I've used it somewhere before. So, you know, if you've heard it before, um, uh, then uh, I apologise. If you haven't heard it before, uh, but feel like going through all the sermons ever preached here at um, Gateway Church, Wrexham, then feel free to do that. An individual who has had a limb amputated can sometimes suffer phantom pains relating to the former limb, a limb which is no longer part of their body. There is in such a case a divergence between how it feels and how it is. We might say, well, nobody knows how we feel. Uh, now that's that's untrue. Um, the living God knows us. He knows how many hairs there are on our head. Accepting uh, that it takes a shorter time to count for some people than others. He knows us when we were being formed in our mother's womb. He knows us and cares for us down to a molecular level. He knows how we feel and he is telling us to cast our anxiety on him can't be that simple can is it's the word of God and in time the phantom pain will dull and it will cease now once cast we have to avoid the temptation to pick up the same anxiety again Okay, I don't know what. We, let me put it this way. Look, take it from me. When you close the fridge door, the light goes out. Okay? We can't be like a dog going back to its own sick. Okay? We've cast it. We've cast it to someone who's caught it. It's done. Now. <laughs> As, as, as demonstrated by, uh, actually to be fair, a bunch of lousy shots, because no one got me. Um, casting anxiety is about throwing it as hard as we can. Okay. Treat your anxiety like a grenade from which the pin has been pulled. Now keep it, and it will undoubtedly do you harm. Okay? 
throw it as hard as you can and any damage associated with it will not directly affect you. We need to bear in mind that uh, all people, um, all of us, we're actually very bad at working out the appropriate amount of anxiety for any given situation. Um, we're just not, not good at that. We overreact, we underreact. I was driving uh, Phil uh, Harmon the other day. I was in Belinda's car, which is altogether nippier than mine. And um, he was starting to gain anxiety during the journey. <laughs> uh, uh, okay. He was starting to think that an amount of anxiety was appropriate. I was reading of a, a crash of a, a British Airways jet uh, at Heathrow. It was only a few years ago. Uh, you might remember it. it made it to the airport, but not to the runway. Some of the passengers on that plane hadn't realised they'd crashed. Okay, They were exceedingly calm and cool and chilled about it because they did not realise they'd just been in a plane crash. Doesn't say a lot for the landing of British Airways jets. Um, they were surprised to be invited to slide down an emergency chute. Okay. This, this came as a, you know, out of the blue. We are just not good at working out the appropriate amount of anxiety, okay? which is why we have to cast it all. Okay? Now, I need to just point out, um, uh, let, let, us, let us say that there is a, a, a Christian man known to us who is having um, an affair with someone who is not uh, his his wife. Uh, let us say that he is finding it very difficult to juggle the lies and the double life that he's living. This is not for him. That is not anxiety, that is sin. Sin requires conf- confession and repentance and a change of heart and a change of behaviour. You can't cast anxiety onto God which is your sin. Sin is dealt with differently. He will deal with it, but differently. It's entirely possible that we can hinder each other when it comes to casting our our anxiety, our burdens, our cares upon him. Uh, These are the words of Jesus in Luke 11. And you experts in the law, woe to you. Because you load people down with burdens they can hardly carry and you yourselves will not lift one finger to help them. To tear up the application to the diplomatic corps, I think. I I don't know what it is about Christians, but we are stinkers for making rules for others. Birthed out of our own habits. Let's be sure we are not loading down others with a burden they need not carry. Whilst we can hinder each other, we can also help each other. Uh, Proverbs twelve twenty five: Anxiety weighs down the heart, but a kind word cheers it up. And the end point uh, of casting our anxiety onto him Um, I felt was just caught beautifully in Psalm 94 and 19. When anxiety was great within me, your consolation brought me joy. 
It actually feels good when it's gone. So now we move on to verse 8 and 9. I'm hoping no one throws anything at me this time. Be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Resist him, standing firm in the faith, because you know that the family of believers throughout the world is undergoing the same kind of sufferings. And the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, after you have suffered a little while, will restore you and make you strong, firm and steadfast. Okay. Uh, I have an African illustration. Let us say that you're, you're traveling through Africa, maybe you're on safari, you're in the bush, the roads are rough, and you're caught short. Okay, you need the loo. <laughs> and the urgency is great. No public toilets, but plenty of cover, lots of bushes. Oh, and I should just add into the illustration, lions on them to be in the area. I don't know if you know this, the roar of a lion can be heard for five miles. Maybe you've even heard one, but you don't know where the lion is. It is fair to say that you would transact your necessary business in an alert and sober manner. The admonition to be alert and of sober mind is so that we will not be picked off due to our own carelessness. It's a warning not to sleepwalk into places of danger, physical or spiritual, which had we considered soberly ahead of time, we would never have visited at all. It is a warning to be watchful of the environment around us. So we get to the roaring lion. First, just remember that lions don't get their own way just because they're lions. Okay? Samson tore one apart with his bare hands. Must have come as a bit of a surprise to the lion. The humble shepherd boy David killed the lion. You wonder what was the last thing going through his brain. But he's only a boy... <coughs> Okay. Lions were famously told by God that Daniel was off the menu, but were allowed to go to the buffet later with some others. Okay. <laughs> Nevertheless, we read that the devil prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Now, generally... Lions roar for three reasons. Either to say, this is mine. Uh, this is my food. This is my territory. This is my girl. Okay? The other thing that they do is when they're hunting at night, they roar to frighten out something they can eat, to frighten it out of cover into the open where it can be caught. Remember lions, uh, in, in, uh, in nature, lions hunt in prides. 
Uh, and I suppose I should just hold my hands up at this point and say, yes, girls, I know that it's the ladies that do all the work in the lion world. We're not simply lion food. I mean, if we were lion food, if that's how it worked, what would happen is we'd pull you out of the baptistry font after you'd been baptized and feed you straight to the lion. I mean, why go cut the middleman out? Just go straight to the... Okay, you're, you're not lion food. That's not what you are. Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. James 4, 7. Nor are we the lion's territory. Okay? We have been sanctified with Christ. He doesn't live here. Jesus does. And nor are we the lion's girl. And I know some of you are wondering how I'm going to dig myself out of that one. Okay? We are the church, the bride of Christ. Okay? Now the devil is a fact. And we've got to be aware of him but we need not be terrified of him. Now, the one place that he would like to flush us out of is this place where we are under the Lord's hand. That is the place to be and the place to stay. And the roaring of the lion should not flush us out. Now, we've discussed that Peter is writing to folk undergoing Uh, the physical and spiritual deprivation of persecution, he knows they must feel like they are beset with enemies. What he's doing through the whole letter is holding up their sufferings against the light of an eternal perspective and against this background to show them that their struggle isn't against flesh and blood. But it's against the rulers, the authorities, the powers of this dark world and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Resist, he says. Stand firm. You're not alone, he tells them. There are others in the same boat and there are others who are rooting for you. And the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, after you've suffered a little while, will himself restore you and make you strong, firm and steadfast. And if we ever doubted God's capacity to do this, there is a reminder to him be the power forever and ever. Amen. Okay, now, it will be easy to close this uh, section down Uh, just here you know we end on a high there's a note of hope it's even got an amen okay and and, you know frankly I doubt you know I fancy a coffee (coughs) but to do so would duck the issue of the oppressed church then and now it's likely that some of the recipients of these letters from the original churches died as a result of the persecution they suffered. You may or may not know, there are 700 or so official churches in New Frontiers worldwide. You may or may not know that there are 50 others which are called the secret churches. 
They worship in nations where, were their existence to become generally known, uh, swift and violent retribution would be visited upon them. Get some of you may well know the pastor of a New Frontiers church quite recently was assassinated outside his church. Now those who are in contact with the churches are particularly alert and sober-minded. Um, information as to where they are and who is involved is kept very tightly. Less a careless remark or a thoughtless action expose them. So it's true now. Now Peter led us through the need for humility towards God, whatever the circumstances. He's shown that for a people under grace, the appropriate response towards suffering is humility. A recognition that no matter what it feels like or looks like, we are under the hand of God. That he will lift us up in due time and that the God of all grace has called us to eternal glory. And during the series, we've seen that followers of Jesus are temporary residents in a foreign land. We don't live here. We're not settling here. We're just passing through. So to those people, what is the worst that the devil can do? He can kill us. But he can only kill us and send us home to eternal glory. He loses again. Now, some of you know I've had uh, various health scares with my, with my heart. The end result is on two separate occasions. I found myself in um, cardiac uh, emergency units with various machines beeping and bonging and what have you all around me. And uh, in particular, I remember a stay where during the night um, people patted in and uh, curtains were drawn and um, someone in the adjoining bed had died. Okay, and in fact, several people uh, died that night. You get to thinking, folks, I don't mind telling you. Okay, what happens if I die tonight? Well, I'm going home to eternal glory. Actually, I'm not the problem. The thing that worries me is Belinda and the kids and the woefully ineffective health insurance. So... Actually, I've been there. I've walked that walk. And I came to the conclusion, well, if I go now, I go now. Lord, I'm under your hand. And I know that separately in another room, Belinda was having that same conversation with God. Well, if you take him now, you take him now. You know, I'm under your hand. So to the last verses of our passage this morning, ragged cheer. With the help of Silas, whom I regard as a faithful brother, I have written to you briefly, encouraging you and testifying that this is the true grace of God. Stand fast in it. She who is in Babylon, 
chosen together with you, sends you her greetings, and so does my son Mark. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ, and the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, after you have suffered a little while, will himself restore you and make you strong, firm, and steadfast. Now, uh, 1 Peter covers some really big themes, and we've covered some of those big themes this morning. Uh, it would be easy to see that as a sort of a PS. You know, PS, don't forget to cancel the milk. You know, uh, PS, you know, remember the gardener's coming on Thursday. Uh, PS, see you next week. It's not. It's more than that. It's there for a purpose. Uh, it's quite an interesting look at real people doing real stuff um, in the early church and what they were doing and who they were. So let me just draw a couple of things out. Leaders need help. If Peter needed help, other Christian leaders definitely need help. He could do what he did because others, named and unnamed, helped and assisted him. They weren't all necessarily, you know, at his shoulder, but they were helping and assisting him. He was in their mind. He was in their concern. Now, when it comes to helping leaders, uh, both in business and in uh, the Church of God, I, I noticed two basic approaches. Uh, the first is a willingness to point out uh, what is wrong and what must be done. The second is a willingness to point out what is wrong or what must be done and then to ask, what can I do to help? They are fundamentally different because one is saying, here's what you should do and the other is saying, how can I help? The next one, we should kiss often. I just realized when I said that, I was looking at a lady who isn't my wife. Okay, so <coughs> I'm going to do that again. We should kiss often. Uh, seriously, uh, the cultural custom was a kiss of love or a holy kiss. We read how Jesus considered it bad manners not to have received one in Luke 7.45. Now, we don't have to follow the cultural application slavishly. But if we think it's okay to come to church and never touch, never greet, never engage in conversation and never express affection toward anyone else, then I suggest we need to think again. And peace is important. We knew that Peter was writing to a persecuted people. And we know that he explained that personal peace is dealt with by casting our burdens onto Jesus. So isn't it odd that he says, well, peace to all of you who are in Christ. I mean, all heck is breaking loose around them. Okay. He's certainly underlining the personal outcome or the output of casting our anxiety onto God. But he's also referencing, I think, peace between Christians within the church. Peace between each other. 
If our relationships in the church become difficult or fractious, then I suggest again, there is something here that we need to look at. I say to verse 10, And the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, after you have suffered a little while, will himself restore you and make you strong, firm and steadfast. You've been given grace, Peter writes. Stand in it, no matter what. And in his time, you will arrive at the eternal glory in Christ that he has called you to. You are on a journey, but you will get home. Now, peace is a, a, a funny thing um, in, in lots of ways. How do we define peace? I've seen people in households with, you know, gazillions of children and mayhem and chaos going around and toys flying past you and the whole thing. And, and, and yet you knew this was a place of peace because these were people who had cast their burdens uh, onto God. And I've been to places which are immaculate and gorgeous and, you know, the, the lawn appears to have been groomed with nail scissors. And, and, and all of that kind of thing. And they are very, very uptight people. For they have not cast their anxiety on Jesus. Okay. The key thing for us to understand is it's about Jesus. Okay. Chuck them at me with all your might, he says. He doesn't promise that everything will get better immediately. He does not promise that all will be roses in the garden. He doesn't, you'll note, even promise that you won't get killed. Okay. But he does promise that you will arrive at eternal glory. And that is where our peace lies. Okay. Thank you very much for your kind attention. <laughs>